Hello everyone, my name is Ryan Driscoll, and this is Stoic Warfighters, a podcast about the intersection of ancient philosophy and the modern military. In this interview, I had the opportunity to speak to Dr. Megan McElhern. Dr. McElhern is the CEO of Wayfound Mental Health Group, based in Calgary, Canada. She completed graduate training at the Palo Alto Stanford University Clinical Psychology Consortium, during which she obtained specialized training in the treatment of PTSD through the U.S. Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD in Menlo Park, California. Dr. McElhern has been in practice in Calgary since 2008. Her clinical practice involves work with active duty members of the Canadian Forces, members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, municipal police officers, firefighters, medical personnel, and others who are directly or vicariously impacted by traumatic events. She routinely engages in teaching and supervisory activity to ensure the sound dissemination of empirically grounded interventions for trauma. Dr. McElhern is also regularly engaged in speaking events, both locally and internationally. She completed a TEDx speech in 2011 related to trauma, change, and resilience, and is the developer of the Before Operational Stress Program, a resiliency-based intervention program for public safety personnel based on Stoic principles. Based on my experience speaking to her, Dr. McElhern is an insightful and interesting psychologist with a lot to add to the conversation about the treatments of soldiers' mental health. I enjoyed speaking to her about her program and the philosophy that undergirds it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as well. Well, Megan, thanks for making the time to come and chat with me for a little bit. My absolute pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Yeah, you come very highly regarded by Dr. Franklin Annis. Well, um, Dr. Frank and I, Annis and I have a bit of a mutual, um, I don't know, what is it, adoration fan club going on or something. I just, I support him and his work in everything that he's doing. And he's become just an incredible colleague and like supporter of our work. So, you know, the world works in funny ways, but I'm sure glad I had a chance to meet him and now by proxy meet you. Thank you. Yeah, I feel the same way. Well, initially, whenever he spoke to me about you, he was telling me about your before operational stress program. And then I also have watched some of your TED Talks and other speeches, but I was hoping that to start this off, you could just talk a little bit about that program because it sounds you know, really interesting and uh, really useful. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, can, I cut my teeth in the U.S. actually working in the U.S. VA system and um, have worked in the field of military and public safety mental health since then. Uh, for kind of a variety of reasons, the the work with uniformed service personnel has been really compelling for me. Um, and about five or six years ago, uh, I'm a I'm a practicing clinical psychologist here in Calgary, Canada, and um, was just overwhelmed with folks coming into my office needing um, really significant intervention for chronic and severe symptoms of post traumatic stress disorder and major depression and anxiety and substance use problems with the corollary of, you know, marriages breaking down and job loss. And um, I was doing my best to keep up with that myself and my colleagues were. uh, And I just got to thinking, you know, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why are we only really helping people when they're at this age end stage of psychological injury? Like, why aren't we trying to do some things um, on the front end? And a lot of that was influenced by when I would be getting into treatment with my with my clients. You know, I'd be talking to them about here's what's happening in your brain. Here's why we think some of this is happening. Here's how we're going to help you hopefully start to recover. And hearing time and time and time again, I wish I'd known this before I started my career. 
Um, and so for me, that just started a bit of an interest. I, off the side of my desk, I started exploring the construct of resiliency and started, um, you know, exploring what do we think are actually helpful, like early intervention upstream kinds of things we can offer people. Um, and fast forward to today, and we have this program called Before Operational Stress. And I'm not exactly sure how, but it does tie back into stoicism, or at least draws from it in some ways, correct? You got it. It does. And again, this is okay. one of these funny things and, and funny ways that happens. So I was in my office um, one day and I came out and, and a colleague of mine came into the hallway and she had just finished working with a, a Canadian Armed Forces member. And she said to me, that's the most stoic individual I've ever seen. And it stopped me in my tracks because I thought to myself, well, isn't that actually part of the problem? And I had heard this idea of, you know, being stoic and people talking about how important sort of stoic service culture was. And I just started thinking, well, what are we actually talking about when we use that word? Because we use it interchangeably. Uh, what I was seeing is we were using this term stoicism or stoic interchangeably with unemotional. And um, I just started becoming curious about if that was what we actually meant. And so started to learn about the Stoic philosophers, started reading some of the um, both ancient and contemporary materials related to Stoic philosophy. And lo and behold, um, learned so much about Stoicism's influence on modern day um, psychology and psychotherapy. Um, I was introduced to Donald Robertson and some of his work um, and, and actually really started to understand that I think what the Stoic philosophers meant is not actually what we've done with um, with that idea or with that notion in particularly in contemporary uniform service. Um, around uh, that time, I was actually gifted um, a piece of art by an artist named Danny Quark, and it's called Defacing PTSD. And it's an image of a soldier um, with a mask and the mask is just like that stoic mask, no facial expression and the soldiers holding the mask. And then behind him is his actual face and he's sobbing. And I just thought, this is it, right? A picture speaking a thousand words. There's this stoic face of somebody who's putting on the mask of what they think they're supposed to show. And yet it belies what's actually happening on the inside. And that was where stoic philosophy fit in is because when I, my understanding or my interpretation of some of the stoic works is they weren't espousing that we should be unemotional. They were espousing that we can and, and should aspire to having a different relationship to our minds and our emotions and, and our physiological reactions so that, you know, we, we don't get overly caught up in um, interpreting these things as being a sign of anything other than just things that are happening inside of us. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And it's, it's definitely something, you know, being in the sphere of talking to military folks as it regards to this philosophy that comes up and is very common. And, you know, it's common in the internet culture around stoicism as well, where people conflate it with being unemotional. And like you said, I mean, it really is developing a better relationship with your emotions. Yeah. And I was actually talking to a retired infantryman who worked uh, for the VA in Maui. And one of the topics that he brought up was courage. And he was talking about how you know, we, we only think about courage in the context of running into fire and putting yourself in physical bodily harm. But he said, you know, in a lot of contexts, it's brave to speak to your wife or to open up or talk to a therapist. So there is this popular misconception, you know, especially around bravado cultures like the military and first responders and such. 
So well, and, it's, it's interesting that that contradiction is what brought you to looking at it. Well, totally. And, and, you know, I've, I've been a sort of trauma therapist and trauma researcher for a number of years. And, you know, before kind of coming to stoicism and developing the before operational stress program, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in how do you actually help people recover from trauma and, you know, maybe move to a place of post-traumatic growth and, and things like that. And, you know, we don't get to sidestep going through the difficult stuff. And in fact, it's going through the difficult stuff that actually potentially allows us to grow. Um, and so that is, that's also a fundamental like orientation for me is that why would we be trying to divorce ourselves from even the most painful things that can happen inside ourselves? Because that actually tells us something about who we are as human beings and what matters to us. And if we, you know, I've seen this too many times, if we cut ourselves off from that stuff, we really lose, we lose vitality, we lose a sense of who we are, we lose a sense of connection to other people. And so like, that's just not, um, that's just not a, a, an approach I can sort of get behind. However, how many times have I heard from uniform service personnel, you know, it doesn't matter what I'm feeling, I have to be good to go. If I'm somehow seen as being vulnerable or struggling, um, I'm going to be less competent to stand beside the people who need me to be there for them, right? And, and so it, it perpetuates this, this myth and this really unhelpful idea that the stuff that isn't um, yeah, bravado and competitive and disciplined and masterful, but that stuff, anything that's not that needs to get shut up, you know, set aside somehow. And it encourages people to suppress or deny or minimize what they're actually feeling, which they're actually thinking. And, and then that compromises that whole post-trauma recovery. Okay. And that's a good segue into a little bit about your program is as I was listening to one of your talks, you were talking about functional disconnect and reconnect because obviously, yeah, it's detrimental to the service member or to the first responder to constantly bottle in their emotions, not to reach out to anybody, not to have that community or dialogue. But on the other hand, you don't need to be crying in the middle of a situation that requires focus. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting, like in the early days of delivering the boss program and starting to talk about what we refer to as like misapplied stoicism and, and maybe ways in which stoic values have been misinterpreted, a common reaction or pushback we'll get from people is exactly what you just said. I can't show up as I am when I'm at the scene of a critical incident or, or you know, I'm, I'm actually on the job. And we would say to that 100 percent that the idea for functional disconnection and reconnection actually came from some research that was done um, with ER physicians and physicians working in oncology. Um, a, a professor out in BC here in Canada um, did some research a number of years ago. And these physicians would talk about, you know, when delivering terminal information or really difficult information to patients, they had to engage in a functional disconnect so they could show up, right? And, and I think anyone who works in a human-centric um, public service kind of capacity gets that, right? Like sometimes you do have to contain your own emotional responses. You do have to be the, you know, broad shoulders, you know, support for someone else. The part of what we've added in and, and the part that we would, we're starting to ask people to consider is that that seems to have become the default mode for a lot of our, our carers, for a lot of our first responders, our, our military, is the disconnection becomes the habitual way of being. And what we're suggesting is that the disconnection is functional. It's what you have to do when you're doing your job so you can do it well. The part that's been missing is actually being intentional about then taking time and space um, to reconnect with what the personal experience of those 
you know, those moments were like for the person, you know, what does it mean for them um, to have been in the face of having to give life altering news to another person? What does it mean to have been, um, you know, witness to something happening in your community? And actually, you know, letting people know that uh, uh, an intentional process of reconnecting with those personally held values and thoughts and emotions, that's our hypothesis is that's part of how you keep yourself psychologically healthy. So we're espousing a balance, hence functional disconnection and reconnection, not just be stoic, stay stoic, and, and as if nothing bothers you to the end of time, because guess what? It's going to catch up to you at some point in time. Yeah. And I, I think to get a little philosophical, I think that there is an argument that, you know, you can't control the emotions that come into you. You know, you can't, those are going to come up and you need to deal with them appropriately. And I mean, it's it's interesting that you talk about functional disconnect because I, I do think that in a lot of times, whenever you're speaking or listening to contemporary ideas around emotions, it's all about you constantly have to be engaged. Mm-hmm. You never need to d- disconnect from your emotions. But there are absolutely times when it isn't appropriate or useful to just like stop what you're doing and engage with that feeling. No, you know, and, and not that this is 100% how it happened, but I mean, even I think about the work that I do as a clinical psychologist, and I work with people recovering from trauma. I mean, there are many, many times where I'll be in a session with someone who's telling me about a trauma that happened to them, and I will have a visceral body reaction, or I will, you know, fear, feel tears spring to my eyes, or I'll feel disgusted or something like that. And I will have a moment where I have to check myself and go, this is not your time. Like my job in this moment is to be here with this person who's entrusting me and honoring me um, with this story, right? But I know for myself, if I don't circle back outside of the time when that patient leaves my office, if I don't circle back with myself and go, wow, that hit me, right? Um, I'm, I'm setting myself up, maybe not the first time, but if I do that over and over again, I'm setting myself up for um, risk, you know, from a, from a mental health perspective, right? And so, yeah, like, I, I really love that idea of like, you know, with our emotions or the things that happen inside of us, our job is just to try to feel that stuff better, not make it go away, right? And, and again, I think that's part of what we've um, we've mythologized for a lot of our uniform service personnel. And I think that's a big reason why we're seeing the rates of psychological injury that we are. And, and this is what we talk about, you know, at length in the four operational stress program. Okay. And to get the timeline correct, was it after you started looking into the philosophy that led to the four operational stress program? Yeah. I mean, it, it really was the, um, it was the crystallizing ingredient that brought the program together um, because I was very interested in, you know, providing people with some upstream cognitive behavioral, you know, training. Um, how do you work with thoughts, emotions, behaviors, you know, education about the nervous system and the brain. And then it really was learning about the Stoics and the Stoic philosophy that what I really talk about with the boss program, as we call it, is it, it truly tells a story, like from where we start in our first session to where we end up in our final session, which is the eighth session, each piece builds on the piece that came before. And so learning about Stoic philosophy, um, that actually started the story in session one. And that really is like the kind of the roots or the foundation of what we talk about. And then over the course of our time in the program together, we end up in this final place where it kind of brings it all together. And, and I think my hope is that it does honor to what the uh, the Stoics are talking about. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting to me, like how the parallels in your story and a lot of other academic stories in terms of their recognizing philosophy as a, uh, what's the term, as a therapy or as a way of life, mm-hmm. where oftentimes this is taught in, you know, undergrad or graduate school. 
but they don't think about it until there's something that's traumatic that brings them to the point where it's like, oh, wait, there actually was a lot of good material mm-hmm. for handling this situation and dealing with it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we're hoping with with the BOSS program and one of the things I think is starting to happen in our communities, generally speaking, is people are a bit more mindful of mental health, right? Um, in the span of human civilization, this is like an eye drops worth of time, right? And so it's going to take a long time for people to practice the same care of their mental health as they do their physical health. But I think that's one of the things we hope. I mean, you know, in in basic training, let's talk about, it would be, to my way of thinking, it would be wonderful, it would be ideal if there could just be an acknowledgement of what we're teaching military members and and public safety personnel of different sectors. What we're teaching you to do um, is actually suppress your natural response to danger or fear, right? Like, if I hear a bomb go off, I should go in the other direction, not head towards the thing, right? And and part of what happens in basic training is like, rather than feeling horrified when something horrifying happens, it's like, nope, shut it down because you've got to go towards that. And, and that's part of learning how to do your job, right? It, it's not intended to be a criticism of that, but it's, again, it's opening up this space for, let's just be clear about what it is we're teaching you to do, right? We are actually shifting your humanity a little bit, right? We're teaching you ways to kind of um, segregate that at particular moments in time. So then let's be extra mindful or thoughtful or or at least have discussion about how do you hold on to um, your humanness, right? How do you hold on to and and even um, like facilitate greater connection with those uh, parts of who you are outside of the times when you have to do your job? Yeah, well, is there any talk within your program in terms of the idea of what is good and bad is, you know, you use the expression, I think terrible in reference to like moving towards an explosion, but the Stoics might argue that it, it isn't altogether terrible. You know, it's good and bad or within your actions. Oh, totally. It, it is what it is. What I, what I meant by that is, is again, it's this natural emotion sort of thing. Okay, so like if, if something horrifying happens, a natural reaction is to feel horror, right? And I think I think sometimes what we do, what we do, and and certainly what we've maybe encouraged our military and public safety members to do is, when something horrifying happens, go no, I'm good, mm-hmm. right? And and exactly to your point, it's it is not good or bad; it just is. Like I I challenge anyone on this idea that there are good or bad emotions, right? Emotions are just emotion, and and I in boss we certainly talk about emotions as there in many ways it's like it's data about what it means to live in the world and we need to sort of almost dispassionately um, be willing to hold space for our emotions without attaching meaning or significance right if I feel uh, grief or if I feel scared I am somehow less than right which is a common narrative that I've heard um, over the years yeah I sympathize with that experience that's definitely I mean it's, it's just kind of typical typical bravado whether you're first responder military or just growing up in kind of a typical male environment. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, and, you know, I think that we're significantly talking about like cultural norms and, you know, what is, what is, and what is not sort of acceptable from a sociocultural perspective. And, you know, I, I play, you know, suffer no fools that this is going to happen overnight. Right. I just think it's important for us to be having these conversations because, you know, in Canada, Um, You know, we have some recent data pre-pandemic that told us that almost one in two um, uniformed service members was was meeting criteria for at least one mental health disorder, right? And the the rates of people thinking about suicide or actually making attempts, whether or not they complete suicide, also extremely high. So 
to me, it's like, okay, we have to look at that information and just be willing to consider, willing to be curious, what is it about how we've established the current norms that maybe is influencing that, mm. right? And and as Maya Angelou said, you know, when you know better, do better. Totally. Um, and so can we try to, can we just try to be more informed and more open to alternative perspectives instead of just continuing to do something because it's what we've always done? Well, I don't know, this might be too big of a question, but is there any way that you could give an overview of the program, the BOSS program? Yeah, no, not at all. Um, if you'll indulge me with a few minutes of, of talking, for sure. Oh, by all means. Okay. Um, so I, I will just say, like, the original construct or concept for the program was um, ideally getting eight to 10 people together in a room with one to two clinical facilitators, um, really to try to form um, a group of people, like a cohort that could actually provide you know, cohesion and support and connection and, and actually really draw on the best parts of peer support. So it, the original concept and what we still try to accomplish in our in-person version of the program is really developing and deepening those connections with, with the other peers in the group. So that's part one. Um, part two is then we start off in the first session really talking about, you know, what is it about the work of uniform service that is different from many, many other occupations? And we talk about um, stoic service culture. And then we talk about things like compassion fatigue and moral injuries and uh, vicarious trauma and operational stress injuries so that people actually have the terms and they understand some of what it is that we're talking about. And, and we spend time in session one talking about stoic philosophy and stoic values and, and what we think maybe the Stoics might have meant and how maybe that's gotten a bit distorted in terms of the contemporary application. And we really look at what's called upon for your you know, modern day soldier or public safety member. Um, and, and maybe is there a different set of skills or a different approach that's required? And this allows us to, to just start to introduce the idea of functional disconnection and reconnection. We don't go into tremendous detail in it in the first session, but that's kind of the foundation we lay. And then that takes us into our sessions, our next two sessions, which really focus on the brain and nervous system. And it's really important for us to have that foundation of talking about this misinterpretation of stoicism, meaning unemotional, um, because we really talk about if you're suppressing your response after a critical incident or after you've been exposed to a highly stressful or traumatic event, what's actually happening, right? What are the biological underpinnings to that? And so we talk about, you know, how the nervous system um, and the, the ability of the nervous system to regulate itself becomes disrupted when we're not actually adaptively processing or working through the traumas and the stressors that happen. Um, so that's kind of sessions two and three. And, and again, maybe you hear what we're really trying to do is open up space here to go. We need another way, right? We can't keep relying on this um, suppression as the, as the only way of doing this thing. Um, and we finish our, our third session really giving people a takeaway strategy to track and monitor um, what's happening for them from a regulation perspective. Um, we then go into sessions four, five, and six, which I really think about as like the what do you do about it sessions, right? So we talk about cognition and emotion and behavior, and we're really trying to give our participants different ways to think about, you know, here's what you can do with your thoughts if you find that they're becoming, um, you know, overly catastrophic or you're um, engaging in different kinds of cognitive distortions. Um, here's what this means for you emotionally. Here's how this influences your behavior and really giving people some ideas about here's some things you can try to do differently. And then we go into our seventh and eighth sessions 
the first, really the first six sessions are all about trying to enhance people's mastery and self-awareness and um, their sense of efficacy or being able to do things with, with some of the psychological challenges they may be facing. And then really we want to bridge into the interpersonal space where in session seven, we start to talk about if you have this better understanding of yourself and maybe you're enhancing your own um, resiliency, whatever that might mean for you personally, um, how does that then translate into your relationships? And so we talk about communication skills and dealing with conflict and, and communication styles. Um, and then that takes us to our final session where we're talking about um, the paradox of empathy is how we, we start off. And what I mean by that is, um, oddly enough, people who have you know, significant capacity for feeling, you know, empathy and for experiencing or um, considering what's happening for other people are sometimes potentially those who are at most risk of being impacted by trauma, right? Because there's this, um, there's this deeper degree of connection that can happen. And then that allows us to go deep, much more deeply into the idea of functional disconnection and reconnection and actually giving our participants um, a, like real practical concrete ways to sort of take that home and take that to work. Um, so that eight, those eight sessions we spend together in, in the in-person uh, version of the program, that 16 hours that we all spend together talking about these things, um, we've had just over 800 people go through the program at this point in time. And that thing about um, sitting down with people that you don't think you're going to be able to open up to is just out the window within the first 10 minutes. You get groups of people who just start going you feel that way. I feel that way. And it's kind of like off to the races. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Because it, again, that was something recently that I talked to someone about and his big point was the importance of community and especially, you know, how transitioning out of the military can be somewhat of a traumatic event in itself because you experience tribe or community in a way that most people can't really understand. I mean, the, the level of connection and camaraderie, is hard to replicate outside of the military. So in your experience, is there any delineation between, you know, PTSD and other traumatic mental illnesses versus just the lack of tribe and the pain of, you know, separating yourself from that kind of experience? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, um, I don't think we do, at least as far as I know. I mean, I, I know some services and, and sectors are trying to pay more attention to this, but I don't think yet... Um, in terms of really helping people work through the grief that they're going to experience when they leave their career and what it means to not have that daily engagement with that community, that tribe you're describing, um, the risks of mental health decline, like kind of post-retirement. Um, anecdotally, we don't have a ton of research to back this up. Um, we have a little bit, but the risk of psychological decline just, you know, elevates, exponentially elevates because, um, Lots of times people maybe don't have um, a community that they've built up because they've been so focused on their career. Um, this whole thing around identity and what it means to be a soldier or a police officer, or firefighter, or whatever, and then all of a sudden that identity sort of overnight has changed and, and people maybe don't have um, like a transition into a new way of being or a new identity that they're going to find meaningful. Um, so it's a really risky time. And um, I do think we need to understand uh, that, sort of abruptly separating people from that pack, right? And, and I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, like we need each other in that sort of community. Um, that is that is actually a, one of the most stressful things that we can go through. I'm not sure if you've read um, or are familiar with Sebastian Younger's work in a book called Five. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I love that, right? And, and this idea that 
um, like in the world wars, you know, people were having to travel together still for extensive periods of time to get home. And so they had a little bit of that bridging from being in the field of battle to, you know, being back on their farms, you know, wherever they might've been. We don't really have that now, right? It's like, you're here and you're gone tomorrow. And that is, it's like a, it's like a psychological amputation. Yeah. And I, you know, anecdotally speaking, obviously, because I don't have any credentials to speak, you know, more specifically, but it feels safe to say that that is something our society is dealing with as a whole. And it is probably much more acute with service members or first responders leaving whatever group they were part of. But in general, I mean, the mental decline and all the mental illness that you hear about, I mean, I can't help but think that between social media and the political divides that we're all experiencing, Mm -hmm. people don't have that close-knit tribe in the way that Sebastian Younger would, you know, explain it, you know, in terms of going out. I think he references either Comanches or an American, Native American group. You know, they'd go out in these war parties and, you know, get into very serious hand-to-hand combat and then come back. And there aren't reports of them being broken by that experience because there isn't the disconnect mm-hmm, of tribe. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I I think about this in a couple of different ways, you know, and I, um, again, I don't mean to be pejorative, but at the end of the day, we are animals, right? And, you know, you look at what an animal does when it's in the most significant pain and maybe it's about to die. It goes away from, from its pack, right? It separates itself. It isolates itself. Well, you know, what does that mean to us if, if that's sort of imposed or forced on us, right? Like that is... Um, that is socially and emotionally exceptionally risky, right? Like that's a true threat to our survival. We're, you know, we talk a lot about fight and flight and, you know, the various responses to stress and how those are adaptive responses we've developed. But I think we also need to realize that as a human civilization, um, we just as much relied on cooperation and community and being able to come together as a means of staying safe and protecting ourselves and advancing, you know, our efforts. So exactly when we have these, ways for you know forced or imposed upon us that that doesn't allow for um that healing and community it's it's it is truly experienced on a on a probably very unconscious but cellular level as a as a threat to our survival and you know these are really challenging times and we're very polarized on any number of issues when really what we need is some ways to find unity whether or not that means we agree with one another we need to have some sense of um, coalesce, coalescing around this thing called the human experience. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, to touch on stoic fallacies or modern conceptions that are stoic fallacies, you know, the idea that you're an island to yourself is completely antithetical to the stoic concept of cosmopolitanism. You know, dialogue doesn't happen on your own. Right. And, you, you know, you can't work out these logical ideas unless you have a community to to get involved with. Right, right. And it's it's kind of another way of thinking about this. And again, to translate into the mental health world, one of the things I'll often talk about with people who are struggling with PTSD or depression, or whatever, is like, you know, it gets to a point where there's diminishing returns of you being the only source of information you have, right? Because if we're prone to interpreting things in a particular way, in a particularly negative way or whatever, and that's the only source of information we have, we're not likely going to, you know, get ourselves unstuck from some of the patterns we're struggling with. We need input. We need reflection. We need empathy. We need to have our experiences mirrored or reflected back to us, right? Whether that's with a mental health professional or just in our relationships. Yeah, totally. And just, Anecdotally, I know that I experienced both of those, you know, lack of community and a lack of identity when I left the military. Mm-hmm. And for me, stoicism has been, 
uniquely helpful in separating my identity from what I did. And another thing that Roger, who I spoke to, mentioned that I kind of chewed on after we spoke was this concept of the military and first responders being almost a kind of celebrity class to a certain extent where they're held up. And I mean, they should, you know, they're they're making great sacrifices for the betterment of society. Uh So I would argue that there is a certain amount of credit due, but whenever you leave that, you are just another person. And that can be a challenging thing when you have this identity that's automatically imbued with a great sense of value and being able to separate what you do from who you are, I think is an important part of leaving the service effectively. And whenever you look at the people who left the military, for instance, I'll just, because that's where I have experience. The people that were the most successful are people that rolled out, took the pros that they got from their experience, learned from the bad experiences and rolled right into the next phase of their life and left what they did behind. You know, it's always part of them. It's always part of their experience. It's part of who they are, but it Mm -hmm. isn't who Mm -hmm. they are. I couldn't agree with you more, Ryan, honestly. And I think that's one of the things is we do have to help people realize um, like they need to take that sort of bird's eye view on their lives and what it is they're doing, right? Like if you are, if who you are and your sense of worth is so you know, completely tied up and with, with what you do, then what happens when you can't do that thing anymore, right? I mean, a lot of the folks that I work with who maybe have had retirements or medical discharges, you know, imposed upon them, um, they feel so ashamed, right? Like they feel like it is a fatal wound to who they are. And there's a lot of healing that has to happen to help them to get to the place of what you just described, right? Which is, this is an offering that you made and a very important one. And this is not the end of your story, right? And and a lot of times people, unfortunately, get, get very stuck in um this is who I was. This is where my glory days were. There's not much, you know, in life for me afterwards. Or sometimes um, my suffering is the evidence that something traumatic or bad happened, right? And and almost like they themselves become the way of of um, demonstrating that something happened that shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that there are a lot of popular voices out there that talk about this in one way or another, where they talk about you know got to get out and you know just move on, but I never heard it articulated well in a way that clicked until I started reading philosophy mm-hmm. and reading stoicism because there's a lot of advice out there that's great advice and it has great philosophical underpinnings but I know for me when I was in pain I needed to understand the why in addition to just the how I mean you can give me a bunch of tools but if you don't tell me why they're important then whenever you're dealing with an existential crisis or anything like that the how doesn't really matter. No. And, you know, one of the things I've come to really understand, um, you know, personally and professionally and and as being a citizen of this global community we're all sharing is that um, we ain't getting away from trauma, right? Like, I mean, in fact, we could argue that trauma is part of life. And I, and I think we'd probably be wise to realize that. Right. And if, you know, if we're coming from this perspective that, we have to prevent these things from happening in order to be able to have a good life or be happy or feel satisfied or whatever it is. Again, we're, we're constantly set up for disappointment and probably pretty significant struggle, right? I think rather what you just said is exactly the point. We have to arm ourselves with this understanding that 
things that are out of our control, out of our expectation are going to happen. And it's, it is in the responding to those things. It's in the struggle or the wrestling that we go through on, you know, in the aftermath of a loss or a trauma, that's, that's where we find what it truly means to be human. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, again, anecdotally, I think it's easy to look around at some of the people that have brought some of the most profound ideas to our culture and almost all of them have some sort of traumatic incident that instigated the their thinking, you know, them choosing to be introspective. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I, I, I think we could argue that you can't come to like these depths of wisdom or knowledge or, or have uh, perspectives to offer the world if you haven't had to contact something that forced you to consider your, um, your beliefs in the first place. Right. We, we don't, when things are easy, when things are, um, you know, just kind of skating along that there's nothing wrong with that, but we have to understand there's a cost to um, our development. Right. And, and I certainly myself in, in doing this work and in what I've seen, I, I sure would choose wisdom over happiness. And, and that's a funny thing to say, but I would. No, I like that. That's, that's pretty profound. And yeah, I mean, I have the same, I've had the same theory and you put it really well that, you know, there's a lot of people that skate through life and by standard, you know, Western values these days, they're, everything's copacetic and they don't, they don't have to stop and think about what they're doing or what's important because they feel like they're meeting some metric that meets their happiness until it doesn't. So like you said, where stoicism has value in the same vein as before operational stress is to provide a, a system of thought to deal with trauma and use it in a productive way, as opposed to just being a victim of fate. Hallelujah. Like, I'll, I, I will high five you on that all over the place. Because I do think, right, one of the things that I think is so hard for people to come to terms with um, is when their perspective of sort of the just world is violated, right? Like when, in fact, they get into their work and they realize, oh, <laughs> there's all sorts of things that like bad things happening to good people and, and, you know, bad people getting away with it and, and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and, and who says, right. Like who says that that's the way that the world is supposed to be organized. Right. It's, it's only until, you know, very recent times. And, and again, human civilization that we, we sort of adopted this as a perspective and that what we should be striving for is to be happy all the time. And if we're not, there's something wrong. Like these, again, philosophically, these are, um, I think these are pretty problematic beliefs for us to hold. Um, because again, you come to a time like we're in right now in the world and, you know, people's foundation is really shaken up. And, and I think we're doing people a disservice by not helping them to realize that this is very difficult. There's no taking away from that. And I would never dismiss or, or deny or diminish the, the pain that people are experiencing. And at the same time, um, this is what it means to be alive, right? And, and we need to try to help people um, realize that actually they, they may have much more competency, much more ability to um, not just endure, but actually create deeper meaning, create deeper relationships, you know, have a better sense of their purpose in this world during these difficult periods. Absolutely. And I think, I think the Stoics would agree with me. On yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. I totally agree with you. And to go back to the eight points that you went through with the program, you mentioned paradox of empathy and it stood out to me because you know, the, the culture that I came from within the military is different than different units. It's different than a lot of first responders. It's different than different militaries around the world. I've heard, um, but empathy was not something that was valued. 
And I know I had barely any. And it was really, I had like a Grinch moment when my first kid was born, when my heart grew three sizes and all of a sudden it was like magic. I could magically empathize with people. So I imagine that talking about empathy with people that are used to shutting down their emotions and not engaging with that in the course of their work is a difficult thing to do. Well, it is. And I think, you know, again, if we go back to some of what we've been talking about, when people sort of learned, you know, kind of by looking around and seeing what was modeled to them, or maybe what was being encouraged, when they learned that, like, yeah, I got to keep this emotional stuff at bay, right? Um, That's not because they lack emotion. That's because, you know, maybe there was this sense of not knowing what to do with it, or that something sort of overwhelming or or dangerous was going to happen, right? And, and the problem with that is that, it cuts you off from all of the vibrancy and the vitality that having a rich emotional life can bring. And when I hear people talk about not having empathy, um, to me, that is not a sign that this person doesn't care. It's actually a sign that they're, um, they have been so overwhelmed in how they've been called on to care um, that they just simply, they can't function anymore. So, you know, losing connection with emotion and, and lacking empathy is actually the end stage of somebody who's been so overwhelmed and potentially so, you know, maybe traumatized or stressed that, that, you know, they're really in a state of distress. That's interesting. I don't know. I mean, in my experience, I feel like a lot of these people come to organizations to go, you know, like the infantry units, for instance, people come there with a lack of empathy. Do you think that that's just something trained or do you think that they come to that from a position of stress? Well, I I would wonder, I mean, you know, we certainly do know that there is a bit of a correlation between folks who've had adverse childhood experiences and going into, to various services, right? We (laughs) We do know that relationship, but you know, I would, I would put it back to you. And if you were to talk to you know, new recruits going to um, boot camp or people, you know, starting their careers in whatever the the public safety sector is. What's what's a common thing that people say about why they're joining up? Serve their country. Yeah, because they want to help, right? They want to serve their country. They want to help. They want to be of service to their communities. And so that in and of itself, that very definition um, implies empathy, right? Um, you know, for sure, I think people are coming to with these historical stereotypes of what does it mean to be an infantry member or to be a cop or whatever. And so they start already. It's not like they're pre-training themselves that this is how I'm supposed to be. Right. But it actually is a bit contradictory when you actually, for me, at least in my experience, you know, all of the public safety and uniform service members that I've worked with. I mean, these are people who have tremendous caring and integrity and desire to be of service and really adopt the, you know, uh, service before self kind of mentality and so on and so forth. These aren't people who don't care at all. Um, It's just that maybe they've gotten a bit confused or or how they're supposed to care. The deployment of that caring has gotten a bit mixed up, Yeah, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. And I I would agree with that. I mean, even the most aggressive warfighters, people that join the military to go and shoot bad guys, you know, typically have a strong sense of justice. They have a strong sense of care for the people around them, for their family. Um, obviously, they'd be willing to sacrifice themselves for that. But this is, and this is something that kind of really tickled the back of my head whenever I was learning about stoicism and really prompted me to engage in this project. It was just ideas around empathy and the stoic concept of cosmopolitanism versus the culture of dehumanizing the enemy, Mm -hmm. which is a typical thing. So I I don't know how that, and 
I mean, I don't know if there's a clean answer, but I mean, I was curious, is there something detrimental in that or is it beneficial? Because there's a popular understanding that in other, making the other person the other, where you compartmentalize what they are, it makes it easier to kill them when you have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I have a hundred percent answer either. I mean, I, I would buy that for a dollar, right? I mean, I do think that's part of why we do that is we need to dehumanize, right? And, you know, you see this across any number of industries, right? Like, it, you know, that's why patients are called patients. And, um, you know, you refer to medical procedures versus what's being done to people, you know, in, in medicine, different things like that. So, I mean, I, I, to me, I think there's probably an adaptive response to that. Um, it's harder for me to do my job and that my job may mean that I have to deploy lethal force. It's harder for me to do that. If I'm thinking of you as a person, it's easier for me to do that. If I characterize you as a certain race or group or whatever the case may be. Um, It's such a, such a tricky thing, especially, you know, in the military, it's very tricky. And then in law enforcement, obviously it's much more tricky because you need to have the mentality of serving your community, not putting the law down on them. Right. Otherwise you can be in trouble. And I had that conversation with the chief of police out in Arizona. He was my friend's dad. And I was telling him, yeah, you know, I'm just, I really want to be that guy with a gun basically still like, I want to keep on doing that. He's like, well, don't be a cop because that's not how we police anymore. We don't need that tough guy mentality. You you need to want to serve your community. Mm -hmm. But based on what you're saying in terms of it being adaptive, it is interesting. And maybe there's a sliding scale there where they are the other to a certain extent. And they are in a different group than you. And you need to be able to think about them separate from your close loved ones, you know, your, the people that you're serving alongside. But at the same time, I think that there might be a benefit at drawing the line somewhere where you don't get to the point where their life means nothing at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to say that you should make it your goal to go home and ruminate on what you had to do for your job, but also just not get to the point where murdering civilians is something that's easy to do. hundred percent. Right. And I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it is a tremendously difficult line to strike. Right. I mean, I think that even in a, a field of war, the mentality or the attempt should be to preserve life, even when we, you know, simply know that's not going to be um, possible. Um, and there's going to be times where it's, you know, the other's life or your own. And, and, you know, to some extent that becomes an easier choice. What I've seen way too much of though is, people adopting uh, that adapt that sort of adaptive mentality we're talking about when they are in the deployment of their duty and whether that's again, you know, on overseas deployment or in their communities as a cop or whatever. Um, I've seen way too much of people then come back to their home lives or their personal lives um, and start judging themselves or engaging in a degree of sort of hindsight bias about what they did, the meaning behind what they did, calling themselves murderers, things like that, right? Like, that's not what we're talking about either, right? That, you know, um, not any one of us <laughs> determined the social contract under which we're living, right? We've all agreed to some extent to participate and, and you know, try to revolutionize for change where it makes sense and, and things like that. But, you know, we all to some extent have to uh, you know, carry on with the social fabric and order as as it currently is. And that means that wars happen. And that means that sometimes, you know, people who are doing particular occupations are called to do things that, you know, they might not want to have to do. <laughs> but what we what, what's not fair is to then, you know, take those experiences of those events out of context and judge them um, unfairly or, or inappropriately. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And 
I spoke to Dr. Leonidas Constantikos, who did his dissertation on just war theory through a stoic lens. And a lot of what he talked about was Hercules circles of concern, which is a stoic concept around role ethics. And I think it's important or helpful, at least in conceptualizing this, where, you know, we start with our concern being at ourselves, and then we extend that to our immediate family members, and it goes outward from there. And like you said, we live in a real world where things aren't always neat and clear cut and wars happen, policing needs to happen. Sometimes things get hairy and a life has to be taken and you shouldn't beat yourself up about having to do your job, but you should never excommunicate yourself from the greatest circle, which is humanity. Mm -hmm. So you should always hold yourself as a member of the human race and value intrinsically human life. But you should also be able to understand that within the world, you occupy a certain space with certain societal expectations. And you should question those and question whether or not they're right. But if you do feel that they're right, you need to act within your roles. And I think that can offer a useful, you know, separation of those situations, the the concern for humanity as a whole, keeping that, keeping that intact, while also understanding that you have a role to play in the context of soldier, law enforcement officer, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about, but I think it fits in, which is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Kohlberg's theory of moral development, but it's it's kind of, you, know, you might find it interesting to, to take a look at. He was an American psychologist and really looked at as we get older and as we develop and as we have more experience, um, we realize that, you know, um, moral decision-making is more complicated than how it was when we were little or children, where it was just about right and wrong, you know, and, and that's exactly it. Sometimes we have to do things. Um, sometimes I have to make decisions that um, are hard for me to make, and, and they maybe have impact on other people that are um hurtful or angering or whatever the case may be. Um, and sometimes it's, it's again, it's in the service of the greater good, but I, I can't extract how my decision is impacting that one individual, even if I have to make the decision, right? And But that's the tension. And we don't love tensions as human beings. We like things to be a little bit more clear cut, right? And, and that's why yeah. I think the the idea of us versus them, or, you know, I can kill them and they're less human than I, I think that's where that can sometimes, you know, fall in and and probably why we need some of these philosophies to uh, to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, in my opinion, obviously this is something I interested in. I think that it would serve the community well to think about these things beforehand. Couldn't you know, instead of just, <laughs> instead of offhand training people, you know, kill, kill, kill. And I, I don't know. I mean, to a certain extent that is useful and there's a place for that, but I don't know how it would work, but at some point in the training or the development of the soldier, law enforcement officer, whatever, um, to be a little more introspective and kind of develop these ideas before you're put in a highly traumatic situation. Well, I mean, and certainly, I mean, to circle it back around to the before operational stress program, that's that's kind of our hypothesis too, right? That's what we're trying to work with is, you know, why not arm people with this information and maybe some of these um, perspectives or philosophies before they, they face them, right? That doesn't dictate how they're necessarily going to respond, but at least it's potentially oriented them. There's maybe a bit of a, a bit of, you know, um, 
neuroplasticity that can start, you know, to, mm-hmm. to hopefully prepare people um, to not be surprised when the, you know, the realities of their job hit home. So now that we're back to the boss program, I was just curious, how long has it been going on and do you have any results to speak of from it? Yeah, so we we launched it in 2018. Um, and so we've been disseminating it here in Canada. It got challenging during COVID. We had to switch to uh, like a purely virtual delivery mechanism. Um, and we did publish the first uh, set of pilot data results in, in the summer. So in August, 2021, there's a publication on the evaluation of the Before Operational Stress Program. If you ever wanted to Google it, you could find it. Um, as well as we did publish a, a concept paper on the functional disconnection and reconnection model. Um, our next paper is probably going to be coming out here. Where are we? February going into March, probably in the next couple of months, looking at the data we gathered from the virtual condition. And uh, it's not 100% public yet, so I can't say from where, but we just uh, um, were successful in receiving funding to deploy the program to just shy of 104,000 uh, Canadians, um, frontline workers impacted by COVID. And we're going to be gathering a whole bunch of data and, and reporting on that. So we've had some publications. We're going to have lots more. Um, the initial pilot data did show that participants reported improvements in mental health. So reduced symptoms of PTSD, reduced depression, uh, improved social support and improved quality of life um, pre and post. So, you know, we have a a burgeoning empirical basis for the effectiveness of the program, which is, which is exciting. Um, And we have research partners at a a group here called the Canadian Institute for Public Safety Research and Treatment, and they're independently evaluating the program have been since 2018 and, and will continue to. That's great. Is there any outside interest in the program besides Canada? Well, lo and behold, and this is again through our friend, Dr. Franklin Annis, we um, we have connected with some folks who are interested in seeing how we could adapt and customize the program for um, different sectors of the U.S. military. So um, we've got a couple pretty big things on our plate right now, but probably over the spring and into the summer, we're going to be working to actually create a U.S. military version and see if there's any interest in, in bringing it down there. That's exciting. I'm interested to see how that pans out. Me too. <laughs> yeah. So if anybody was interested in finding out more about this program outside of this podcast, or let's say some commander in the military is interested in being a part of the program, is there any way to to find maybe find you like on a website or email? Oh, yeah. What's the best way to contact you? For sure. So um, there's lots of information on the Before Operational Stress Program on our website. And so that is www.wayfound.ca. Um, and so just on our landing page, there's a, a link to the BOSS program itself. Um, I'm also very happy for people to reach out and chat with me about stoicism or the program or life and philosophy. Um, and so I'm Megan, M-E-G-A-N, M at wayfound.ca. So either of those would be great, great ways for people to connect. All right. Well, Dr. Megan McKellorn, I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. I I expected it to be more about psychology than philosophy, but I think we got a pretty good mix. I think we did too. And, uh, and I really, really appreciate the invitation and love what you're doing. I I follow you. So I'll, I'll continue to do so. And uh, yeah, if there's anything else I can, I can do as we try to advance, bring stoicism back to the modern world. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, totally. All right. Thank you. And uh, all right. Maybe we can do this again one day. I would love that, Ryan. Thank you very much. You take care. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.